And I want to talk about engaging because engaging is something that we as people do to engage with each other. We engage with each other, say, as friends, or we engage as spouses, or we engage with God um, in a meaningful way. I want to talk about engaging. So I have a, want to use an illustration this morning of a clutch. <clears throat> Now most cars have automatic transmissions, but sometimes we have cars that have the stick shift with a clutch. Okay, so I just want to give a little simple illustration about how a clutch works. So clutch has two parts to it. Well, probably more parts than that, but we'll keep it real simple. Okay, so clutch has two parts to it. One half of the clutch is attached to the engine, and whenever the engine runs, that, that part turns with it. Okay? The other part comes together with the clutch uh, where you have two, two faces and one face is turning with the engine and the other one, when you separate those two parts, it stands still. So when you step on the, when you step on the clutch pedal, those two parts come apart, those two clutch faces come apart. And then when you let the clutch out, they come together. So as the engine is turning, when you let the clutch out, those two pieces come together so that both of them turn together. You see what I'm saying? That's called engaging the clutch. So when you disengage the clutch, you step on the pedal, the two parts come apart, and so the engine can run and the car stands still. But when you let the clutch out, the two parts come together and they turn together, and that's what makes the car go. So if you're not going to engage the clutch, the car's not going to go. The only way the car will go is if you engage by letting out on the clutch pedal so those two parts can come together. It's a very simple, very simple illustration of engaging. All right? uh, so if we, would use the, if we would use the term engagement with a husband and a wife, as they get to know each other, they become engaged. That means that their two lives are going to come together and they're going to operate together now. And Jesus said, when two come together, they operate as one. So you have a real basic, a real basic mathematical equation that doesn't fit math very well, but it goes this way. One plus one equals one. It's not good math, but you understand. See, So there's an engagement that happens there that allows two people's lives to turn together. So how do we engage? And I have a couple of stories from the Bible. I want to talk about in, engaging uh, stories from the Bible. How do we engage with Jesus in a way that is meaningful? <clears throat> uh, George Knight. Anybody here ever hear of George Knight? Our church historian, uh, church writer, uh, church theologian made a statement in one of his sermons one time that I thought was really, really meaningful. And he said, Christianity is not about not sinning. He said, Christianity is how to live for God. And there's a difference between those two things. And so the emphasis within the Adventist church has a lot to do because of our relationship to the Ten Commandments, our relationship to law, where we put a lot of emphasis on living on uh, on law law keeping 
and, and therefore we tend to move sometimes to the side of say, how do we live so we don't sin? When he says that's really not what Christianity is about, Christianity is about not about not sinning. Christianity is about how do we live for God. Those are two different things. And so if we can think in terms of, of getting people to quit sinning, sometimes we want to get people to quit sinning. And so a good illustration of this would be, how do we get criminals to quit committing crimes? Well, there's several things we can do to get a criminal to quit committing a crime. One thing you can do is you can put them in jail. See? If you put them in jail, you've made them quit doing crimes. Well, we can go further than that. If they're really bad, we can inject them. What they used to do in the old days, they used to hang them. We can shoot them. We can electrocute them. We can throw them off a cliff. We can do all kinds of things to make them quit doing crime. But the question is, have we changed their life so that they live a meaningful life engaging with society, engaging with their families, engaging with other people, and living a life of engagement rather than just stopping doing bad things. And so there's a difference between not sinning and living for God. So I read a book about uh, back in the old days, I think it was one of these uh, books like Little House on the Prairie or something like that when they were talking about families, you know, from long ago. <clears throat> they were talking about keeping the Sabbath because there were people who kept the Sabbath as Saturday or some people kept Sunday, but they wanted to keep it holy. And so in order for, to get them to make sure that the kids did not sin on the Sabbath, after church was over and you had your meal, you sat on a bench until the Sabbath was over. That way, you wouldn't sin. Now, there's another illustration. <clears throat> My wife and I were um, part of the Kansas-Nebraska conference for a lot of years. And uh, we were at Platte Valley Academy, and this was camp meeting time, and so we were doing camp meeting. And my wife and I were in charge of the primary division, so we did 10 days of meetings, you know, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening for the kids for 10 days. <clears throat> and it was really a lot of fun. But I remember walking between the ad building one time and the girls' dorm. And we were walking, and this was on Sabbath, and I was walking with another individual, and we were kind of talking, another adult, we were kind of talking, and over to the left, all of a sudden, here was about six or seven little boys playing football. <clears throat> and the other individual said to me, well, look at those boys playing football on the Sabbath. He said, watch this. So he went over and a little something to say to these six or seven boys playing football on the Sabbath. And they all scattered. And one of them took the football and they were gone. And he was happy that he got them to quit playing football on the Sabbath. And I thought to myself, he might have got them to quit playing football on the Sabbath. The question is, did he help them fall in love with Jesus? And I don't think that probably happened. So there's a difference between, between not sinning and living for God. 
How do we live for God? So here's a, there's a story. There's two back-to-back -back stories in Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to that, uh, Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> there are two back-to-back -back stories. Now, one of these stories is about a woman who came to anoint the feet of Jesus. Uh, there, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a con, I don't know if you'd call it a conundrum or whatever, but uh, one story is associated with one circumstances and one story, the same story apparently is associated with another set of circumstances in the in the in the Gospels. But we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to look at this particular story about this particular woman. And then we're going to look at the story that follows it in Matthew 26. So here's the story of this, of this woman in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, when you read the story in one of the other Gospels, it points out that this woman was a sinner. Now, we're all sinners, but it means in a special way she was a sinner in the town in which she lived. And uh, that, that meant probably that she was involved in adulterous kind of relationships with the people around her. Now, uh, from the information that we read, and you read Desire of Agents in some of those places, apparently Simon had led her into the sin problem. And there's a whole set of circumstances revolved around Simon. There's a whole set of circumstances revolved around forgiveness that show up in some of the other Gospels. But, but this, this woman was a sinful woman. She was a sinner. She lived a life that really wasn't too good, apparently. But somehow, somehow, she fell in love with Jesus. She fell in love with Jesus. Something made her so appreciative of Jesus that when she came to this, found out that Jesus was at the home of, of Simon, and Simon himself apparently had been healed from leprosy by Jesus. That kind of comes out in one of the other stories too. But she is so appreciative of Jesus that she comes with this box of nard, and, and the Bible says in one of the other stories that this was, this was valued at a whole year's worth of wages. 300 denarii. A denarii was, a, uh, was a, the amount you would pay somebody for a day's work. So she comes with, with this box of nard, expensive perfume, and she wants to show her appreciation for Jesus. And she breaks it open, and, it, and it's it, apparently when you break it open, you couldn't put the lid back on. You break it, it's broken, it's open, and she dumps the whole thing. Okay? And, she's, and, and when you read all the stories, unless they're two different incidents, it's probably the same story. She dumps it on his head, she dumps it on his feet, she's kissing his feet, 
She's weeping with tears. She's drying his feet with her hair. She's doing all of these things. And this just goes on and on and on uh, in this incident. She's engaging. Okay? She's engaging. And the question is, why is she doing this? A sinner. It's kind of like Rahab in Jericho. When, when they were about ready to come in and destroy Jericho, here's Rahab, a prostitute, who somehow has an appreciation for God and says, I want to be part of your family. Can you protect me when you come to destroy the city? Can you protect me? Can you protect my family? And the long story short is that she was protected and goes to become part of the Israelites and becomes part of the bloodline of the Messiah later on. So here's the sinful woman who says, I appreciate Jesus, I appreciate what he's done, I'm going to show my appreciation, and she takes this nard and she dumps the whole thing, wiping his, his feet, crying over his body, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Verse 10 says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, he's aware that somebody's starting sniffing the air and saying, why this waste? Why didn't we just sell this and give it to the poor? Uh, aware of this, why are you bothering this woman? <coughs> Excuse me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume, perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the whole world, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay? That's one story. Here's the next one. Right? Following. Then one of the twelve... called the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you so they counted out for him 30 silver coins from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over now according to this gospel right after the story where the woman anoints the feet of Jesus you have Judas getting up and apparently he's with the twelve because I from it's from the from the stories apparently what's happening Jesus with the twelve is having this meal at Simon's house and the woman comes in so Judas apparently after this gets up leaves and goes to contract with the religious leaders how he can hand Jesus over okay now here here's two contrasting people One's a sinner, one's been involved probably with adulterous kinds of activity, but has been touched by the life of Christ and comes to show her compassion and her willingness to be forgiven and so on and so forth. You have that one. Now here you have, and, and probably spotted contact with Jesus. Now here's the next one. Here comes Judas. Three and a half years he spends with Jesus. Now from, from what we can tell, the twelve disciples were not constantly with Jesus at the beginning. 
probably their full-time ministry happened after they'd been with him maybe a year and a half or two. So they have a year and a half or two years where they're really full-time with Jesus. But here's Judas who has close contact with Jesus for three and a half years and then he goes and contracts with the religious leaders to hand Jesus over. So let's talk about engagement. What kind of engagement does Judas have with Jesus? What kind of engagement does this woman have with Jesus? And what in the world would... And you see how it's written uh, here when Matthew writes it. He says, then one of the twelve, the one they called Judas Iscariot. It's almost like Matthew is saying, <laughs> he was one of the twelve, but was he really one of the twelve? The one they called Judas Iscariot. It doesn't sound like it's too personable here. And you have, you have one, one individual who has limited contact with Jesus and interaction with Jesus. You have another one who is with him for three and a half years. And yet the one who is the sinner and the one who you least expected really engages with Jesus in a way that's meaningful and purposeful. And the other one, the engagement is somewhat skewed. Why is that? <clears throat> if I could bring up one other person in this too as kind of a side note. <clears throat> what did Peter do to Jesus? Denied him three times. What did Judas do to Jesus? Betrayed him. Was there much difference between the betrayal by Judas and the denial by Peter? Was one less forgivable than the other? Not really. Uh, Judas could have been forgiven just as easily as Peter could have been forgiven, right? But why did Judas react the way he did, and why did Peter react the way he did? <clears throat> In the Last Supper <clears throat> that follows this story here in Matthew, on verse 17 of chapter 26, <clears throat> it says that on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparation for you, to, for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So they went and got things ready. When evening came, verse 20, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. 
Then they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better if he had not been born. One of you is going to betray me. And they all start saying, really? Is it me? Is it I? Who's going to do this thing? And Jesus starts identifying the one who dips his hand with me. He's the one that's going to do it. And here comes, here's Judas in verse 25. And he says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I. Surely not I. Is it me? Surely not I. And Jesus says, It is you. It was like, it was like Jesus was saying, What do you mean, Judas? Are you trying to pretend that it's not you? What? It is you. Come on, Judas. You know. You know what you've already done. You've, you've gone to the religious leaders. You've already contracted to betray me for 30 pieces of silver. And you come to the Last Supper and you ask like everybody else, is it me? Come on, Judas. Who are you trying to kick? To, who, who are you trying to fool? You're a hypocrite, Judas. You know it's you. Why are you asking, is it me? Are you trying to make yourself look good in front of everybody else? <laughs> what are you trying to do? You know it's you. Of course it's you. So here you have, here you have these two individuals, a woman who's a sinner, outwardly a sinner, and here's somebody who supposedly is one of the twelve and is getting ready to betray Christ. Psalms 41, verses 7 to 9, <clears throat> was a prediction about this very thing. <clears throat> Psalmist wrote, verse 7, All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile, a vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. And then he says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he has shared, he who has shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That was a, that was a prophetic statement made about what was going to happen to Judas. And when people ate together, it was a way of saying, it was a cultural agreement, it was a cultural way of saying, if I'm willing to eat with you, I trust you. I have your best interest in mind. I want to be your friend. And yet here's Judas doing what he's doing. So my question this morning is, how can we engage with Jesus? Why was it? that this woman who apparently was a sinner, 
engaged with Jesus in a meaningful way, and here's somebody else who spent three and a half years with him, and the engagement really didn't mean anything. How do we engage with Jesus in a meaningful way? Peter uh, went out after his denial, and the Bible says he wept bitterly. Judas went out after his betrayal and hung himself. You know, Peter, Peter had engaged with Jesus in a way close enough so that after his denial of Christ, he saw value no. in saying, I have, to come, I have to come back. I have to go through a process where I can come back into a meaningful relationship with Christ. You know, that's hard. Because in order to come back, to a meaningful relationship with Jesus. We have to go through a process. There's repentance. There's forgiveness. There's working out the relationship. Something has to happen between us to get it worked out. And sometimes that's really hard. It's time consuming. And it's relationally difficult. And sometimes for some people, because Judas could have done the same thing. For some people, it's just easier just to go, let it all go, just do away with self, and forget it. And apparently, that's what Judas did. Judas did not have enough of engagement with Jesus that when the time got tough, to do what it took to re-engage with him. That's the only thing I can figure out. So how do we engage with our Savior? I want to, um, you know, Jesus was constantly trying to bring people to himself. Engagement with Christ is a, is a process that takes time. It's a process that takes energy. It's a process that takes relational oneness with him on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, through study of Scripture, and uh, as I have uh, as I have studied Scripture, I have find found out that um, <clears throat> that that Jesus was constantly trying to draw people to Himself. You know, I'm the rock. I'm the sheep. I'm the shepherd. I'm the lamb. I'm the light. I'm. You know, it was on and on and on. And Jesus was saying, come unto me, all you who are labor heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, it's an engagement, personal engagement with Christ that we seek to know him on a personal level that, that, that just is an ongoing thing. We begin to see him as a friend. We begin to see him as a, as a, as a personal someone we relate to on a personal close basis. That happens when we pray. It happens when we study. And these things we struggle with. Uh, don't think I'm standing up here and telling you that I have this perfect relationship with Jesus because I struggle with some things. And for me, prayer is difficult. The study part is easier. The prayer is difficult. But when we start communicating with Him, when we start interacting with Him personally, you take the time for that. Folks, the devil will do everything he can to keep you from doing that. Because... 
There's 10,000 other things you want to do. There's 10,000 other things should be done. And, and that's why I think when Ellen White talks about a lot of activity that we can get involved in in entertainment and things like that, it's not that those things are so bad in themselves, it's that it takes us away from him. And to engage is to, is to take our Bibles out and to study his life and to say, I want to spend some, I'm spending time with you today. When we pray, I'm talking to you today. I want to know you today. I want you to be meaningful to me today. And, and take that time. Take it regularly. It's, it's a part of getting to know Jesus because uh, I don't know about you, but boy, the world sure looks like a mess, doesn't it? And the only answer out of that is Him. That's, a, that's the only answer out of Him. And we're, we're not going to get answers anywhere else from that. And so this is an encouragement in our engagement with Jesus. And seek to have a meaningful, let him speak to you. You speak to him. You talk to him. Say, I want a meaningful experience with you. And God will help us to have that. Because that's what he wants. That's what he wants. Do you know that he wants to be your friend? So let me say this in closing. Somebody was asked, uh, some theologian, some said, if you could take this whole world and what's happening in it and, and put some meaning behind it, what one phrase, if you could put that into one sentence, what would it be? And he said, he said, here's the one sentence I've come up with. The maker of all things loves and wants me. My creator, the maker of all things loves and wants me. And if God wants us, just like I want a relationship, and when I want a relationship with somebody and they're not willing to engage, That, that's not meaningful. I mean, I can do what I can do, but just know God wants to engage with you. Jesus wants to engage with you. He's longing to have that. And so, uh, as, we, uh, as we go on with our lives, we get closer to the second coming. I want to encourage you, put the effort to engage. Some of the other stuff can go, but put the effort to engage.